This is HRT, a podcast featuring interviews with HR leaders, researchers, students, and influencers. HRT takes trending topics and research in human resources, steeps them for 30 minutes or less, and leaves you with fresh brewed ideas on how to drive high-performing, inclusive organizations and create meaningful work experiences. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD, the graduate programs in human resource development at Villanova University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to HRT. I'm your host, Bethany Adams. I love HRT, but truth be told, I am still a coffee drinker. On today's episode of HRT, we are going to talk people analytics, and I got the opportunity to sit down with Ben Weber, who literally wrote the book on people analytics. Ben is president and CEO of Humanize, a behavioral analytics company that uses real-time data flow to help organizations rethink people management strategies, physical workspaces, corporate planning, training, digital programs, and so much more. Ben's PhD from MIT is in human group dynamics. He was a researcher at Harvard, and his work has been featured in dozens of media outlets. The work that Ben and Humanize are doing in people analytics is changing how we think about quantifying people decisions. You will hear him say later that for too long, HR has been relying on gut instincts and had a very hard time putting value on human interaction. His programs help us do just that. You will hear him talk about things like sensor data and privacy issues, and at the end, he will even give our HR students some tips on how to think about working in this field in the future and what will be important. To kick us off, I ask Ben to tell us how he got started down the path of people analytics and why this field is so important to him. Yeah, I I guess it's that, you know, if you think about people spend the majority of the waking hours at work and you think about how many millions of people hate their jobs (laughs) not for complex reasons right it's that the work environment sucks they have you know terrible interactions with their team the issue had always been that the vast majority of companies managers don't set out to create those kind of environments right they just sort of happen and then the challenge is always about not just figuring out that they're happening but improving them And the issue always comes down to, at least today, whether or not someone in a leadership position believes a story. If I believe a story about how to improve the employee experience, then maybe I'll invest in it. But it comes down to cost and all those things. And at the end of the day, they don't really know what they're getting out of it. And it was a sort of thing where at first when I was doing my PhD, we had a professor from the business school come over and say, you know, I'm studying this bank in Germany and we're collecting email data. We're getting daily surveys from them, but I really feel like face-to-face interaction is another critical component of that. Mm. Could you use sensors to help look at that and then combine all the data together to look at what's going on? And we thought that sounded cool. So we went over there and collected a lot of data across this bank and, you know, large organization. And, you know, when we first collected that data, we did the simplest analysis we could think of. We said, let's just look at who talks to who, hmm. what that network looks like, and how that changes over time. 
And we'll try to use that to, and we'll relate it to the survey results as well as performance data we got from the bank, and we'll see what we find. It turned out that those analyses, we, our metrics are about six times more predictive than all the other data put together. Hmm. Right? And so we wrote a bunch of papers on this. We wrote the first paper on it, and obviously we sent it to the executive team at this bank because they let us do the study. Great. They saw that, and they said, wow, this is amazing. We're going to do a reorg based on that analysis. And, like, and we thought that was crazy. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we were, you know, a bunch of grad students wrote yeah. this paper. And we said, wow, that's pretty cool. There must be mm -hmm. something here. And so over the course of our PhDs, we were going to more and more companies and looking at, you know, trying to dig a lot deeper into the data around mm -hmm. what behaviors really matter for trying to predict outcomes. And then at the end of our PhDs, we were actively changing how companies were being managed based on our analyses. And it's at that point, of course, we had companies coming to us saying, hey, we'll pay you to do this. And, and that sounds good. And so we uh, sounds great. That's right. We, <laughs> we started up the company and, you know, got to the point today where, I mean, I can provably point to the fact that there are millions of people who measurably, you know, like their jobs better, who make more money and their companies make more money because of what they do. And that's worth my time. Yeah, it's cool to find something to kind of combine your passion and, hey, people want to pay me to do this. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, so one of the challenges that I see for organizations today is just the sheer amount of data that we can collect now. Yeah. So a lot of your sensor data, it can collect so much about how we talk, how fast we talk, what does that mean for our interactions and cohesiveness and all of those things. So how do we go about thinking about what types of data we should be collecting and then kind of a second point to that question how and you mentioned this in some of your papers and other videos that i've seen of you that people today don't quite know how to analyze that data because it's data we haven't yeah. we're not used to looking at financial numbers anyone can analyze that because we've been doing it forever but this is different so how do we train people to analyze that kind of data and then what should we be collecting in our organizations i'd say there are there's a number of data that, a uh, number of types of data, I'd say that people should be collecting, but all that really has to be driven by what do you want to do. Yeah. Right? And there is a near-term answer to that and a long-term answer to that. Long-term, all the data that the company is generating internally, you should be analyzing, right? And I can say that pretty much without exception. Now, again, the limitations on what exact data you pull from an ethical and then also legal perspective, right. I'm, I'm sort of including that in there, but I said yeah. within those boundaries, there really shouldn't be anything you're not looking at because saying, hey, it's hard to do is not exactly a good excuse for like not doing something that's really valuable, that's right. right? It is, again, crazy that you can go to any Fortune 500 company in the world, at least it's not working with us, and you can say, you know, tell me how many hours your employees work on average, and they can't answer, right? Now, they can for the, the you know, the hourly employees. Well, certainly, but... but not for the people who are probably doing the most critical work exactly. in the organization. And that's just crazy, right? So how would I get at that? Well, I would look at I'd look at email data, I'd look at chat data, I'd look at meeting data. I would look at badge and badge out data from IDs. Not to look at specific individuals, but mm -hmm. to look at macro level patterns. And there are so many different data sources that you can access. Now, if you do it at first, right? So let's say, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to plan a reorg. Or maybe I want to do a reorg and I want to evaluate the impact. Okay, what are you trying to change? I'm trying to change how people collaborate, which groups work with each other. Okay, great. Then I need collaboration data. Mm -hmm. How do we collaborate today? Well, we use email, we use chat, we use phone calls. Maybe we use Slack or Jira or something else. I want as much of that as I can, can get. Right. right. To your point, as that data gets less and less 
digital and more and more analog, not in terms of uh, surveys, for example, which is still useful, but in terms of I get into the physical world. I get into sensor data about you know who's in what room or things like that. Right. That is a lot harder. It gets harder and harder to understand. Okay, so in your book, you discussed sensor data and the privacy issue that you just mentioned. And in fact, I think the headline in your book is like big data equals big brother, which I think the moment we present this kind of sensor data to our students, that's the first thing that comes up in conversation. Ah, I don't want someone listening to my conversations. But there's really good kind of the parameters that you put around how the data is used and that you're not collecting content. So tell us a little bit about what those are for our listeners that are right now thinking, oh my God, my organization is listening to my conversation. There's a couple things. First of all, when it comes to the listening to conversations, there are things like wiretapping laws that make that illegal. So that's a good thing. (laughs) In terms of the work that we do, we work with data the companies already have. Companies don't have audio data about what people do at work, right? We're looking at communication patterns over large groups of people. Mm -hmm. So part of that means we're not looking at names or email addresses. We don't look at content. It's really how much do these groups talk to those groups, that sort of thing. And I'd argue that really should be there are really good scientific reasons, as well as ethical reasons, why that should be the, the scale that you're looking at this kind of data. I think what this means, though, is that because there is that natural, totally legitimate you know, reaction to, to pretty sensitive data collection, and I think that what is required is, is regulation around the space. Right. All right. So one of the examples that you gave towards the end of your book, and I love this, like I want to see us be able to do this in organizations now, but it, I think it kind of goes back to the privacy issue and I'm curious how you would address it. So you talked about how we could help with cultural integration for new hires, that essentially if we could look at the social data on how often these new hires are integrated into groups and teams and what they're doing, we could give them some type of almost a, a report on their you know social integration into the organization. How do you do that if the data itself, which one, let's do that, because that would be amazing (laughs) and awesome. But two, how do we do that if the data itself isn't individual and we're anonymizing it and aggregating it? And how do we do that for teams? Well, I think this all comes down to, and it can become become a more technical discussion, (laughs) but it it comes down to the way that data is collected Mm -hmm. and then for different stakeholders, what rights they have to access what kind of data. Okay. By necessity with this kind of technology and with our technology specifically, we collect data at an individual level, right? You're collecting right. data on individuals. Like that is, that is what's happening. Now, when you collect it, you are essentially running it through, when we collect it at least, we're essentially running it through an anonymization program that means that I don't have names or email addresses gotcha. or things like that. So to your point, if you told me I've got to send Ben Weber feedback on his behavior, I can't do that. Do that. Like technologically, I can't do that. I don't, it is mathematically impossible for me to do that. However, the way that we've built the system is such that if I log in, if I feed into essentially the anonymization program we use on our customer server, so I can't touch it, then it will tr- change the, my login information to whatever you know ID that we use on our end, right? Okay. It's just like when you log into your bank. Bank, okay. Right? Yep. So I type in, my bank doesn't save actually my username and password. It saves this hash and salted version of that. Right. And so, again, if you go to your bank and they said, you know, this person, this email address or with this username is doing something bad, they actually wouldn't be able to tell them who, who it was. They I mean, need you just to know can't the individual. That. Exactly. 
And so setting up a system in this way means that if the person is able to log in in that way, that individual could access their own data. Hmm. Right? Okay. But you've got to make sure again that those access controls are in place, right? And you make sure that so how do and you how do they create know the account going into it and all exactly it's interesting. so okay. there's all sorts of technical things around. You have to create an account in such a way that the employer would not have the ability to get that kind of login information. So you yep. said to go through personal email. So it does get a little bit more complicated. Yep. But it's doable, and I think that it's likely going to have to be something like that. I mean, that's again how we do things, but I think that's really the way do things in, in you know from that angle yeah i love it because i think that often especially when we talk about changing culture or integrating employees the social part of it becomes really hard to get data on and that's what you're creating within your system exactly and, and i think that i mean again it's not to say that there isn't a place for individual analysis even within companies and then right. you can have teams you know people analytics teams that are doing this like and you should have that but i think that the internal rules first of all that govern you know, who that team can share data with, right? Because again, you don't have to use a platform like ours. You can even pull this data and do analyses yourself. Mm -hmm. But making sure that there are very strict firewalls between that group and other groups in the organization, and also that there are like legal guarantees to employees as well about what you will and won't do with data. I think those are the really important things. Yeah, so this is sort of like a bigger, broader, I'm sure you get this question a lot, but how do you see some of the technology that you're developing adding into kind of this future of AI and machine learning that everybody's talking about, but nobody really knows <laughs> how it's going to affect our organizations or what it's going to do. I, and, and this, yeah, it's always a fun question. So, you know, we, we use those, some of those algorithms in our platform. Right. What do we use them for? So part of it is to understand the data that comes in and to be able to learn patterns from that so that I can figure out you know, in this organization, this type of an email is a meaningful communication. This one isn't, and so I should ignore it. In this sort of a work environment, if I see these proximity patterns, that means people are communicating versus they're not. Those things are automated, right? And they have to be at the sort of scale we operate. In a similar way, though, learning relationships between behaviors and outcomes, it's similarly like a online learning process. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Going beyond that, some people are like, well, does this mean you're going to build an automated manager? And that's just... <laughs> No, no, but people ask that, right? Because, hey, we can, cause we can predict performance pretty accurately. And I could say if you change this behavior by 10%, right. just look at the reaction. And, and that can, you know, All over of our time. managers are robots. Well, that's right. Well, so, the and then you can say, well, over time, what am I building up? Well, I see our customers roll out different initiatives. Okay. I change the org chart. I roll out a training program. I change the office design, whatever. And then I measure the behavioral impact of that. Right. Which means that then I learn. In general, if you roll out this thing, here's the range of possible behavioral outcomes you'll get. So you could make the argument, well, I could automatically learn you know, rela relationships to outcomes, and I know what kind of behavior change I can get, so I could just say, you know, automatically implement these things. Right. Which would fail spectacularly, right? <laughs> like, the, the thing is, is that what this technology does is fundamentally it increases accuracy and speed. But accuracy and speed of people. Right? Now, Certainly by our platform, suggesting changes can help people maybe think of things that they wouldn't have thought of before. Right. But I tell every one of our customers, if you just blindly implement changes that our platform uh, suggests, you're going to make a lot of dumb <laughs> decisions. Yeah. Right? Because no algorithm, no matter how smart, can understand the full context of the work that people do. Now, again, there are some maybe a, a very small number of jobs where that's the case, but I'd argue it's very, very, very small. And I think that's it's just pretty clear that that's the case. What I would say, though, is that right now, when it comes to people decisions, we are still very, very slow. 
and making those decisions, yes. right? Because we want to get to the right answer. We think there's just one right answer and that it's going to be the right answer for all time. That's and right. that's just wrong. Yep. They're hypotheses. And, and we, we sort of do know this a little bit, but we just don't admit but it. But we don't want to accept it exactly. when it comes to po- creating policy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, where, you know, the AI and machine learning parts of the platform come in is on being able to very rapidly identify trends and being able to suggest some of these things Mm -hmm. but that the actual power comes from people having the culture built in place within the organization to rapidly test out those things and that's something that this kind of technology enables it makes it possible like without our technology you can't do that but by itself these are just pretty graphs i mean frankly right and we are so far from being able to have an algorithm that that understands work where i could would trust it with any sort of large-scale management decision on its own. It's much more for the next, for probably, honestly, at least our lifetimes, going to be about using this to just dramatically increase the the velocity of work in general. Hmm. Well, to that point, and I- I'm curious, what is Humanize working on now? So, like, we've seen some of these big projects that you've done and the information that's come out of it. Like, what new projects are you working on that are going to, that in... A couple years, we're all going to be like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. Well, so what I think is interesting today, you can give me any company in the world and say, hey, I want to have them up and running, starting with their last six months worth of data. And I don't care how big the organization is today. I'd have it up and running in about three hours. Wow. And so that took time. So now we can do that. That's amazing. Um, So that was a big deal. It doesn't look sexy because it's all like background stuff, but it's so super important to be able to operate with that kind of That speed, yeah. But a lot of that, and still the vast majority of the data that we that we ingest is from things like email and chat and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But what's been increasing also very quickly is a sensor data about the real world. That's a lot of where I spent my PhD focusing on that stuff. It's also what we, we know, dozens of papers <laughs> to show it, that data is a lot more predictive of any outcome you can name. The challenge has always been to get it, right? That for me in a 100,000-person organization, you know, to you know, on a daily rally basis, be able to, to know, to look at communication patterns or, you know, space usage patterns or things like that. There just weren't those kind of sensors, you know, rolled out. That's becoming not the case, right? And so what's been really interesting for us is building, you know, creating the ability to, you know, ingest that kind of data at similar sorts of scales. And we, we already know how to do that. So it's more, it, it's more that what's exciting is that if, you know, in a couple of years, you walk into an office in, in, in any sort of a company, there's going to be all these sensors in the space already. And what we're going to be able to do is, in a weird way, essentially use technology to validate the importance of that physical human interaction. Sad it, that we have to do that, but we need it so that we make that it, better decisions. Exactly. It, it's in a way sad, but in, an, in another way, it, it makes complete sense, right? Yes. So. If you are a Fortune 500 company, let's say you have over 10,000 employees, just to take the workplace as an example, you're spending billions of dollars a year in the workplace, like you are today. Absolutely. I can go to a CFO and I can say, we really need to value the face-to-face interaction of our employees and we need to invest in it. And they can say, absolutely, I totally agree on it. Here's the question, how how much should you invest in it? Mm -hmm. Should I invest an extra billion dollars on that? I don't know. That, that's, right. a, that's a hard question. You don't right. know. It doesn't, even if you qualitatively value it, it is impossible, impossible for a person to put a hard number on that. You can't. Right. And so as a consequence, 
For the people side of business, you get a scattershot approach, which is based sort of on gut instinct, and you don't really know what you're doing, yep. and it is impossible to get consistency or scalability on any of that. Yeah. Or we use what someone else has done, and we, we say, it's got to work over here because exactly, it works over there. Exactly. And it's follow the leader type stuff, yep. and it's it, it's dumb approaches. We don't really know if it works. So it takes us years to figure out if it does what we want it to do. And so by being able to put some numbers on it, you at least create a reasonable conversation around it. And I think that that is arguably one of the one of the key benefits of this kind of technology is that with you know you get so many organizations now that are talking about the employee experience that talk about value it but it's just talk that's right and we're able to and what we've seen in our customers is get them to the next step is okay we can actually measurably improve that and we are going to invest it we're going to invest more money in it and i know that because and i'm able to do it because i'm able to make it not about cost and and that is where we need to go across every business decision, but you need without metrics, it is so hard to get there in an organization of any sort of size. All right, so last question for you. For our HR students that are studying HR, getting kind of the, the fundamentals of all the different functions, but we have a lot of students who are really interested in how do I go into people analytics and what do I, what's gonna be the future of this field and what should I be studying now for where it's gonna go? What kind of advice would you give them around that topic? Practitioners and the academics that wanna go on and do research. Ideally, you need, I mean, I would say a lot of the skills that you're going to learn to be a, a good HR professional are going to be very valuable, I mean, particularly around change management, right? If we talk about being able to move an organization very quickly, what that means is building up the internal organizational muscle to be able to come into the office one day and say, well, this week, I'm going to change where you sit. I'm going to change how I pay you. I'm going to change, you know, what communication tools you use. Like, that's hard. And tell people why. Well, because well, they're no, exactly. going to be like, but, what? Well, th but this is the thing is yes. that you can't just do that, yes. right? There's all this stuff around that, which that is, if I think of a lot of what HR is really strong at, it's it's building out that sort of organizational processes and understanding. Right. There's, of course, other parts of this as well, which is, all right, being able to analyze the actual data itself and whatnot. Then you get into taking statistics courses. Yep. Some amount of programming ability will be useful because you're talking about lots of different kinds of data. I would also say that understanding that HR doesn't exist in a vacuum, and people analytics right. doesn't exist in a vacuum. If you make it exist in a vacuum, it's not going to be very effective. effective. Right? That's right. And so what that means is looking more into workplace design, so corporate real estate stuff type stuff, looking into IT tools as well, and so gaining some understanding of how do you make purchasing decisions around, you know, whether you use Slack or G Suite or whatever, similar things around operations as well. Right? Understanding how do those uh, how do supply chains work? How do you create processes and those things? And not that you need to be an expert in any one of those things, right? The the most effective teams that I've seen are ones that do bring together people from these different backgrounds. So we have HR professionals, you have people from IT, real estate, operations, data scientists, eventually software developers as well. To the extent though that you are at least able to talk to those other folks mm -hmm. in at least a basic level with a decent understanding, I think that that just sets you up to be really successful because this whole field is still shaking out and it's still you know, not clear. I, I do think that eventually you'll see people analytics really be housed within operations itself, hmm. but we'll see, but I don't know. That's probably it, where it's gonna have the most effect. Yeah. 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 And, and so I think that to the extent that you know, folks who are, who are interested in this whole field can, can build their competency, sure, in their core area, 
but then be conversant in more of these general things. I think that's, that's going to be the most important thing in uh, near to medium term. All right. So what I love that he just mentioned when talking about what students should study is that he hit on some of the very things that we at Villanova HRD cover in our HR analytics certificate for students. He talked about organization development and HR technologies and then the statistics and research methods. These are some of the courses that students in our program take in this specific certificate. This field is one we know is becoming more and more important in business, and we love that we have the opportunity to provide this kind of knowledge to our students for the future. I didn't mention this at the top of the interview, but I actually recorded this session with Ben back in early 2019, well over a year ago. And we would all say that the world has certainly flipped on its head since that time. But what's interesting is that even though our workplaces have changed dramatically since early 2019 from in-person to almost completely virtual now, the importance of people analytics has only grown. Just last week, Ben was featured on CNBC to talk about the effect of the virtual work environment on business productivity. Many people thought that a strictly work-from-home environment would actually decrease our collaboration and communication and overall work. But based on their data, Ben said that the percent of the workforce that is now working 14 hours per day has actually doubled and that total communication is unchanged, but people are communicating more with close collaborators. So we're not communicating less, we're just communicating more with the people who matter most to our jobs. Ben also spoke about the importance of casual encounters that we have at work. You know, the around the water cooler talk and the chats in the hall between meetings. He mentioned how Humanize is working to analyze those kinds of experiences that are now happening virtually and provide insights to businesses on how to replicate those experiences in a virtual environment. How important is this kind of data right now for organizations who are trying to make really critical decisions about how to navigate the future? People analytics is going to be crucial for the future business. If your organization is not already thinking about how you measure and quantify social interactions and human connection, it's time to start. I'd encourage you to check out the Villanova HRD blog for links to Ben's work, Humanize, and some great videos to share with colleagues on this subject. All right, everyone, that brings us to the end of our episode today. Remember, whatever you are drinking, whether coffee, tea, or something a little bit stronger, I hope it leads you to fresh brewed ideas that will help make work better for all of us. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of HRT. As your thoughts from today's episode steep, share with us what you are brewing using the hashtag HRT. That's hashtag H-R-T-E-A. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD. To learn more about Villanova University's graduate programs in human resource development and for all the links and notes from today's episode, visit the Villanova HRD blog at villanovahrd.com.